0: Welcome to the Innovation Engine podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and on this week's episode, we'll be looking at how to make innovation simple, the key structural elements that all innovation efforts should include, the importance of nurturing the front end of innovation and where innovative ideas should come from, and why you should always look to create a balanced innovation portfolio. Here with us today, To discuss all that and more is Dr. Kevin McFarthing. Kevin is the founder of Innovation Fixer and a top innovation blogger who has two decades of experience at the heart of innovation. He spent 17 years in an innovation leadership position with Reckitt Ben Kieser, one of the top 20 companies on the UK FTSE. More information available at www.rb.com. Dr. McFarthing has led product development efforts in a variety of areas, including consumer healthcare, household products, prescription medicines, diagnostics, and molecular biology. For the last three years, he has been named one of Innovation Excellence's Top 40 Innovation Bloggers, and he's a participant in the Managing and Organizing Open Innovation team, which we'll cover in the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. McFarthing.
1: Thanks, Will. I'm very pleased to be here.
0: Absolutely. Thrilled to have you here with us. So let's start things off today talking about how to make innovation simple and what exactly we mean by that. Because you're not necessarily saying that creating and launching innovative products or services is simple in and of itself, right?
1: That, that's correct, because the statement that innovation is simple, that simple, bold phrase, um, might raise a lot of eyebrows as a minimum. What I'm not say- saying is that technology challenges are easy and driverless cars and space tourism um, and you know all of the fantastic work that goes into the technological side of innovation is easy. So, certainly not. There are some extraordinary challenges out there. But the structure of innovation can be and should be simple. If you think about how companies are organized anyway, they are They have R&D, sales, marketing, supply, procurement, finance, HR. They're organized vertically in classical silos. So innovation has to cross all of these silos. So it's tough enough in an organizational sense to actually make innovation happen before making the structure of innovation complex. So I think that you can build a structure for innovation management that is simple Um, And there's a great quote that I like from Albert Einstein, which said that um, uh, things should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler.
0: (laughs) I like that. So, So let me ask, you recently read a blog post on this subject where you laid out the nine elements of innovation structure. So since the journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step, what's the first step to successfully innovating, in your opinion?
1: I think the the first step should be starting with strategy. So what are you trying to do as a company? Um, What are your growth targets? What are your business objectives? Which new businesses do you want to get into? Where are the serious competitive threats coming from that you want to defend? Mm -hmm. Um, A Classic strategy portfolio approach. And within that, there should be a a very strong uh, direction on what's expected to be delivered from innovation within the time frame of the strategic plan. So what revenue do you want to generate in which areas? Um, how, How much of that revenue will come incrementally? How much of it will come from new products that are actually defending existing business? What are your core businesses that you want to grow faster? What are the supporting businesses? What other options do you want to generate for the future for the business? And that should inform the innovation teams what the expectations are, what they have to deliver, and in which areas. I like the, um, the three horizons uh, framework that was, I think, originally developed by McKinsey. So in the first horizon, which is generally much closer to today, you're looking at how you want to extend and defend the, the core businesses. Then with the, the, the second horizon, you're looking how to build emerging businesses, new options for the future. And finally, on the third horizon, you're looking to create viable options for new businesses for the future. Um, all of these areas will call on innovation resource. Um, and in order to make sure you're putting the resource where you you really should be, then this, the strategy should should give you some very clear guidelines about what's expected. So I'd say the first first place to start is having a good strategy with a clear direction for innovation and aligning the innovation program with that strategy.
0: Okay, great. And, and one thing that you talk about often is nurturing kind of the, the front end of innovation. And I think probably oftentimes when a lot of people think of innovation they're thinking about that last horizon that you talked about which is viable options for new business. Uh, is there can you, do you really want to apply the front end of innovation to all of those different horizons or is there one that you should kind of focus on when you're thinking about the front end of innovation?
1: Well, I suppose the front end of innovation is both a place in the funnel, mm-hmm. um, it's at the front end where everything goes into the funnel, Great. but it's, it's also a phrase that you can use to cover a set of techniques uh, and approaches where you can generate new ideas, new approaches, new concepts, new business models, new approaches. To generate new revenue mm-hmm. um, and I think you, you there's um, some maybe a couple of ways I would, I would approach it in terms of generating ideas um, there's a very good book by Stephen Johnson called where good ideas come from mm-hmm. in that he talks about you know the the slow hunches the ideas that you have which aren't, aren't fully formed um, and it's through chance collisions with other people that you can actually uh, combine your hunches with theirs, produce something new, and produce something at least that you can start to describe, and something that's tangible, and work through to prototype or whatever. So he talks about fostering those chance collisions, and building good networks, and networking with people who don't think the way that you do, networking with people who don't work in the same area that you do. Um, So you actually build diversity into thinking as well. The second thing is, in, in term, when it comes to ideas, um, I believe that you can actually make idea generation part of your routine if you use the right techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so these two ways, look, look at the serendipitous approach, doing the right things to ultimately generate good ideas, and then actively timetabling, you know, putting, you know, putting pe- people and resources into place to generate ideas. And you can do that across all of the three horizons. You can work on new ideas for your existing business. You can work on new ideas for your emerging businesses. And you can work on new ideas for the, the options for new businesses for the future.
0: Okay. And, and let me ask you about something that I that I think I heard you say in there, turntabling?
1: Ta- timetabling. Timetabling. Okay. Can you go into that a little bit? Yeah. I suppose the, the language pedants might be saying, that's not a verb. <laughs> but hey, you know, <laughs> um, there's... there's if you if you have a problem, um, rather than saying uh, you get the same people around the same table to discuss the same problem, and you'll probably come up with the same uh, solutions that haven't worked before, but there's no, you, so that's putting time in the in the diary. But you should also put time in the diary for every three months, every six months, uh, whatever's appropriate for your business, to get a group of people together which includes subject matter experts, includes naive challenges. Might include customers, might include consumers, um, to hold f- proper, organized, structured idea generation sessions that are part of the timetable, part of your way of doing business, part of your routine. Rather than just waiting to the, um, uh, the oh audio, what do we do now moments, where you uh, have a problem and you're suddenly panicking and you think we need some new ideas, you should be anticipating that and building ideas in a timetabled manner.
0: Okay, got it. So, so essentially, it's your your product roadmap, for lack of a better way to put it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Keep keep on filling the the front end of the funnel.
0: Okay, great. And do you have ways that you recommend companies kind of prioritize what things they choose to move forward with from that timetable?
1: Yeah, I think. Well, each company will have criteria about what's most important to them. Mm-hmm. So, um, to the the key criteria would would be. Um, potential revenue, um, uh, and feasibility. Whether that feasibility is a technical feasibility or a market feasibility, um, you can actually use a mix of both. Um, You may, for example, want to have another criterion in the emerging businesses. It might be the ability of, of, of that idea to strengthen your competitive position in an emerging business, which might not score very highly on the potential revenue in the short term but maybe a key strategic move for the future to generate businesses uh, to generate value over the medium to long term Um, you may have uh, a criterion which looks at the geographical spread of your business if it's important for this for the strategy to enter new geography then ideas which will enable and facilitate the entry into the new geography might be prioritized more highly than those which strengthen your position in the existing geography. Mm-hmm. So there are, there, are, there are probably about fifteen or twenty criteria that you could draw from but you should use the criteria that are most appropriate for your business and for the horizon that you're actually dealing with.
0: Sure, okay, that makes sense. So uh, in, in the blog post where you lay out the nine elements of innovation structure one of the things that you talk about is the importance of having a balanced innovation portfolio. Uh, so for, for companies that don't have you know, tons of money to throw at R&D, how can you still maintain a healthy portfolio of innovation projects when you know, one on its face seemingly could be the type of thing that you could throw you know, a, a good amount of money into?
1: I think the, 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 the key reason for having a portfolio approach to innovation is to make sure that whatever resources you have um, are directed to where they will make the biggest difference in terms of a- innovation output. Um, now, whether you uh, focus all of you know as much as that on a small number of projects, or whether you spread it thinly, mm-hmm. is is your is is up to you and what you have to deliver. Um, but it should be one way of making sure that um, uh, the urgent and the important are dealt with appropriately, because quite often, if there's a if there's a fire to be fought then tomorrow's business generally assumes a lower priority. Mm-hmm. Um, and you need to find ways that the urgent doesn't, overwhelm the, or doesn't always overwhelm the important. Um, then you need to be thinking about a balance in the portfolio across different horizons if you really do need to deliver on, the, on those horizons. Um, then building in the prioritization, you can actually use the portfolio to communicate to the key people in the business who are working on innovation and try to cre- create alignment on that, what the most important priorities are. Um, there's several other things which, which come up here as well, which is using open innovation, you can actually use your internal resources to leverage more resource from outside. Uh, so if you don't have the resource internally, you might be able to find people who are skilled and capable and, and companies that are skilled and capable that you can work with at some point down the line, there will be a financial uh, question to be answered, but it doesn't always have to be, you know, big big bucks up front.
0: Okay, got it. And let, let me ask you about Ben Benkeiser a bit, because I think most of our listeners are here in the US. Probably, we do have listeners that tune in from all over the world, but we were talking before the podcast. There, uh, can you, can you give, give a little background on what, on, on what kinds of products Reckitt Benckiser puts out and your history there with them, the, ty- the types of things you were working on?
1: Sure, yeah. Um, and uh is has sales of around about $16 billion a year. It's number 16 on the FTSE 100 in terms of market capitalization. Uh, and it primarily does consumer brands, so brands like Lysol, French's Mustard, Airwick, uh, Finish Woolite, uh, and increasingly, it's very important in terms of consumer health. So brands like Mucinex, Mega Red, uh, Durex, uh, Gaviscon, um, and it's 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 really around about consumers. But it's uh, it's what I would call an innovation engine. So between 30 uh, that's, and th- that's, that's fitting. Yeah, of course, exactly, quite <laughs> appropriate. It's it, it's it's, an, it's another little plug there, Will. Um, so it's. Uh, uh, it, it, between thirty and thirty five percent of of this year 's sales will come from products launched in the previous three years wow. and that's that 's been a continuous um, delivery since the company uh, was formed from a merger at the end of the 1990s um, so um, at, at rB I was head of r& d for health and personal care and then became head of strategic alliances so um, A lot of work with other companies, a lot of work on open innovation, working with with, uh, people outside to deliver innovation that RB would would launch. Um, And fantastic insights into uh, innovation management, um, which I've continued with uh, since I became independent and set up my consultancy business um, to help people improve how they actually manage the flow of innovation. Um, you know, it's it's a lot more, you know, the, the innovation is a lot more than an idea competition. It's uh, actually active, positive, professional innovation management can really make a big difference to you, to the innovation output, um, uh, you know, in terms of products, services, and real value you can deliver, and also being efficient around innovation. You know, the classic definition of efficiency, which is, you know, what do you get out for what you put in?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so... I- um, let me ask about, about execution because you, we're, we're talking about how to make innovation simple today. And I imagine that there were some things that you, uh, that you learned and developed over the course of your 17 years at Reckitt and Kieser that you've carried over into your, uh, into your personal business. Excellence in execution is one of the steps that you lay out for making innovation simple. And one thing that you recommend having is a, is a stage gate system to kind of smooth the project path and be sure that only the most worthy ideas are getting through to production. Uh, So one of the main points of this, I imagine, is to keep projects from reaching the kind of runaway phase where countless time, money, and effort is being thrown at a product that's not really driving ultimate business success.
1: Yeah, and the classic graph of effort versus time. And this is, this is going to be quite a creative challenge here, Will, to describe a graph on, a, on, a, on an audio podcast. <laughs> so imagine the y-axis being effort and the x-axis being time. Yeah. And you have a hump of effort at the start. Um, you know, this is like the stereotype project. You have a hump of effort at the start, which is everyone gets really excited. There's a lot of consumer work done. Project gets approved. Then the effort goes down. And it tootles along, and just gradually makes it gets towards the end when people think, "Oh dear, we've got X months to launch, and we've got this massive list of things yet to do." So the effort curve goes up dramatically, you know, gets to a, a peak of maximum pressure where the system's fit to burst, and then starts the you know, launch, and suddenly everyone breathes a great big sigh of relief when the effort goes down. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be much better to see a flatter, uh, smooth, smoother curve. Without that massive effort at the end, sure. and having good excellence in exec- having excellence in execution, makes sure that you anticipate a, a lot more as well. Um, that you can actually build more challenges into the specification and the brief that you set yourself. So, right, you know, if you have a, a culture very much like our which is very driven, very results-oriented, where you challenge yourself to say, yes, we could deliver X. But if we deliver X plus, we can get more business, we can get more consumers, we can get more revenue. Um, and it's always that, that drive and that passion to deliver the best product that you can get that, that can actually really contribute to excellence and execution. And this has some overlap with, with culture, which we, uh, I think we can pick up later. But it's not just a functional part of the project, this it you know it, it's there's some very strong human elements in there as well um so you need some supporting elements like stagegate, like excellent project management um and but but again, these don't have to be bureaucratic and I'm a big fan of simple stagegate um and sim, you know simple uh management systems which get people actually spending a lot more time at the lab bench working on real products rather than at their desk writing gate papers.
0: Sure, and so to avoid that that prototypical hump into a uh, straight line up the y-axis, what would you recommend some typical stage gates be?
1: Well, the the, the classic would have something like f- five or six stages and four or five gates, so you might have a an idea stage, uh, a concept stage, and a, a project approval stage, um, which means it moves into development. You might have a stage which talks about approving the validation phases, then approving the launch, and then a post-launch gate. Um, I know some companies now, and, uh, and Philips Consumer Lifestyle have made some some presentations on this in the public domain in the past. We're aiming to get down to, to, to two gates, which would be. Um, a project approval gate and a project launch gate now that doesn't mean to say that anarchy and chaos reign in an uncontrolled manner in between Um, because generally companies employ talented capable intelligent people Um, and they're able to actually self-manage themselves if given the time and space and freedom to do so Um, so they know that um, if they have to invest in some capital expenditure as part of the product development, the company will have procedures for approval of capital expenditure. You don't need to build them into another gate. Um, They will know what has to be done to develop product. Um, And there's too much, in in, in my opinion, that's built into stage gate systems which is around potentially unnecessary control, which if you free up the people who are capable and allow allow them to, to actually take on more those things that they can, they can deliver. Not only will you get um, a faster, smoother system, you'll probably get more motivated people as well. because I, I haven't met anybody yet who really enjoys writing a gate paper.
0: Okay, got it. And, and you mentioned culture in an earlier answer. And one of the things that you've written about is is the importance of a supportive culture to making innovation simple. Why is that such an important aspect
1: well, I think the, there's a, a famous quote by Peter Drucker, uh, the, the, the management guru, which has almost become a bit of a cliche, which is, um, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And if you, if you step back and say, well, um, most technologies are available to, to most companies. So unless you have a, an absolute golden patent, then most companies are able, in, 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 in individual industry sectors, they're able to compete. They're able to develop products to sell to customers and consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, they, can put, they can organize themselves in, in, the, in, in an optimal way. But the ultimate differentiator is the people that you employ and how you organize them. Um, and that is a very, very key aspect of the culture. Um, so what you want is to, to have a culture where people are, are motivated, are driven, want to develop innovation because they trust the leadership. They're clear in the communications from the leadership, what's going on. Um, they're spending more time developing the products at the lab bench and then spending less time in corridor conversations, moaning about the management um, and you, they're encouraged. Um, the, 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 when when um, support from the top is, is spoken but not acted upon, that actually gets in the way of an innovation culture. So if the if the if the leadership says we, we you know, innovation is the key priority, but all of the questions in, in review meetings are about short-term savings, um, you know, short-term firefighting, uh, efficiency measures, uh, etc., and not about innovation, then there's a dissonance between the message and the activity. Um, so I think the, it's in, it's important to, to try and build the right culture by. Giving a good strategic direction, working out what you want, mm-hmm. having good management systems in place, and then stimulating you know the, the the whole the whole system stimulating the front end, because again there are many examples written about which uh, companies try to build a culture of innovation by doing things like having idea competitions. When if they're not if they're not um, followed through, then it actually can can be. Counterproductive to having the right culture of innovation. If it's important, then it should be, you know, detectable in actions as well as statements.
0: Sure. Okay. Let Let me ask you about uh, lean startup and open innovation. Open innovation is a term you've mentioned a few times, um, and it's it's essentially, if if I'm correct, kind of uh, outsourcing, if you will, or or sourcing ideas from places outside the company that you may then be able to implement. Is that an accurate definition of, of open innovation?
1: It's, um, it's, it's, part, it's partly there, yeah, because it, it's, a, it, it's an outward view mm-hmm. of, in, in the, from a company. So it's, it's either looking out for things that you can bring in and develop uh, under your own brands and develop under your own uh, infrastructure and markets. Or it's saying, well, we actually have assets internally that we aren't using or we're suboptimally using from which we can generate more value by working with people outside because they're better placed, they have better market access. So it's looking to, to, out, to out-license effectively assets that are underexploited. Okay. The, the vast majority, I would say, at the moment is, is uh, outside-in or inbound. So uh, first of all, a lot of crowdsourcing work going on, so people will look to build and co-create ideas with customers, users, launch idea competitions, um, looking outside uh, using uh, in, in intermediaries such as peop- you know, people like InnoCentive or Nine Sigma to find technologies either through um, open competitions or, or just direct searching and sourcing, um, or working with other companies in a collaborative manner to develop new products. Um, so I mean, Procter and Gamble and Recy have been very good in these areas, um, and Procter and Gamble, you know, started off with the uh, the charge to get fifty percent of ideas from outside the company, and they claim to be quite well over that number now. They also, incidentally, have reported that the products which have a significant component of of external input of you know these open innovation projects have a 70%, 70% higher net present value than totally internal projects. Um, and it's easy to understand because you work with somebody who already has the competency and the ability to deliver. You don't have to spend time and money investing in it yourself.
0: Sure. Okay. Got it. And the, do you see a move to kind of lean startup principles also being used in the enterprise or lean startups kind of being set up to, to operate standalone within large companies?
1: I think the, the some companies are definitely starting to, to do that now because I mean it, it, the the term came from the experience of a guy called Eric Rees, um, Ries R I E S and he wrote a book called you know, surprisingly Lean Startup um, and obviously the, the, the key lessons come from startup companies um, talking about getting to a minimum viable prototype and and rather than just sending things out for testing to see how much you sell. You, you, you're sending things out for testing to, to, to learn. So you'll do a build, deploy, measure, and, and learn loop. And as long as you've got the right metrics to work out what you're learning, you'll actually develop better and faster than if you just tried to sell, sell, sell. So even though it was initially based on startup and small company experience, I think a lot of corporates, large corporates, are now realizing that having such an approach internally has just as much relevance to embryonic businesses as it does to a startup. I mean, it'll be very difficult to create a complete startup mentality and culture inside a large corporate. But there's nothing wrong with taking the principles and trying to apply them to that scenario. And I think for the future, there's a lot of potential in taking this, these principles, and applying them to opportunities in big corporates.
0: Okay, great. And let me ask you about the Managing and Organizing Open Innovation Initiative that you're involved in. We mentioned it during the intro, uh, some, some big names associated with it. What is it, and how can people who are interested get involved?
1: It's, um, well, Managing and Organizing Open Innovation, or the wonderful acronym MUI, <laughs> um, was started by Henry Chesbrough, who I suppose some, some people may call the father of open innovation. He, you know, he wrote the, the, the book, which first coined the term in 2003. Um, then Vim van, uh, van Haverbecker and Nadine Royakas uh, are also uh, involved. Um, essentially what they're doing is crowdsourcing input on open innovation. Um, they're, they're actually walking the talk. They're practicing what they preach. Uh, to get uh, people like myself and lots of, lots of other people as, as well involved in co- contributing to various topics, on the state of open innovation and the practice and the future of open innovation. Um, and people can get more details at MUIForum.com, which is M-O-O-I-F-O-R-U-M.com.
0: Okay, great. And we're, we're getting a little low on time, Dr. McFarthing. Any, any final parting words of wisdom for listeners on how to make innovation or the structure of it at least simple?
1: Yeah, I think it would be good if companies actually reviewed how they manage innovation on, on a regular basis, whether that's once a year or once every two years. Um, and when, when they review the innovation management system, the key question is, what can we remove from the system? Um, it's, it's also very important because the temptation is always to add more things. Um, and whilst you know, many product development uh, initiatives have what's called feature creep, you know, why don't we add more? Yes, let's add this, let's add that. You should have the reverse mindset, not only with product development, by the way, but also with innovation management. Um, and I came across a, a great quote reading an article by Steve Shapiro yesterday. It was from um, uh, the French author Antoine de Saint-Exupéry and he said, perfection is achieved not when there is more to add, but when there is no more to be taken away. So I think that's, that would be my key message.
0: Okay, great. Well, that's a great note to close on. Thanks so much for the words of wisdom, Dr. McFarthing, and for coming on the podcast. Some great advice on ways to make innovation simple.
1: It's been a pleasure, Will.
0: If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Kevin McFarthing, you can follow his writing at innovationfixer.com, innovationexcellence.com, and you can find him on Twitter at innovationfixer. Thanks again to Dr. Kevin McFarthing for joining us this week. And thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune in to next week's episode when we're excited to welcome back to the podcast, Dr. John Kanegi, to talk about the neurophysiology of innovation, why human decision-making is often anything but rational, how that impacts the way to influence change, and why habit and singular focus can be powerful tools for any business looking to improve performance. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week.